Good cop. Bad cop. <laughs> For those of you just tuning in, this is Ghoul Cop, Bat Cop, uh, where my compatriot Amy Martini hey. uh, and myself, I'm Michaela Pasquale, we uh, review the worst horror movies you've ever seen. Or the best. Or the best. You decide. In our opinion. We decide. Mm-hmm. And we uh, tell you. Yeah. And that's why you're tuning in. Hopefully. Yeah. We also... I hope someone's listening to us. <laughs> Someone, please. Uh, we also... Love us. In order to ease our suffering, we uh, create delicious alcoholic beverages to pair with the films. And people don't know they're delicious. We're, again, telling you they're delicious. We're telling you we will provide the recipe. You can try it yourself. Mm -hmm. We recommend you do try this at home. Yes. I picked Office Killer. It was released in 1997, but was actually filmed in 1995. It was directed by Cindy Sherman, who has never directed another film. Cindy Sherman... It's her only movie. Only movie. So Cindy Sherman is actually a conceptual artist. Meaning? Uh, or a contemporary artist. Meaning that she... Okay, so contemporary art really got started in the uh, late 20th century and has continued on into the 21st century. Um, Cindy Sherman, um, got started, uh, in the late sixties and really started to find success in the early seventies and into the eighties. What makes her, what separates her from most contemporary artists, I think is the medium. So a lot of contemporary art is painting, drawing, um, you know, creating things that aren't, um, necessarily, a reality or making you challenge um, your perceptions. Mm. Um, it has roots in Dada and German Expressionism, which mm. we covered briefly in a, a mini-sode. Yeah. The one where I went off on uh, Vancouver and mistook heroin for fentanyl. We learned so many things. Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what really sets... Cindy Sherman apart is that she is not a painter, but she still creates portraits of herself. She uses a camera as a tool. So she, a photographer? Um, yes and no. She okay. So Cindy Sherman would say that she is not a photographer, um, largely because she doesn't do what other photographers do. Um, I brought you this book, The Essential. Oh, I've been staring at it this whole time. Yeah, The Essential Cindy Sherman. It's this teeny tiny little book I picked up at the library. Um, There are some highlights in there if you want to look at those. All right, so now that we've we've talked a little bit about Cindy Sherman, um, let's let's go back to the mystical land of 1995. (laughs) Oh my god! When this film was produced, Mm -hmm. Um, watching it felt like it was a lot older. Yeah, Uh, so in 95, Sherman won the MacArthur Genius Grant, and this is also the time when a lot of, when, when, um, there was the kind of the rise of independent films. Um, So Miramax actually distributed this. This was like the, that was the first big indie distributor, or one of them. Uh, I will say that they did not know who they were marketing this film to, Miramax, but Hmm. we'll, we'll get to that, you know, once we've discussed the plot a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, she was there. There was a big push around that time to get artists 
to direct films just to see what would happen. Yeah. This is the only film that Cindy Sherman directed. Mm -mm. And I'm going to say that she probably doesn't want to direct any more movies. Because of that movie experience? I don't, I don't know necessarily because of that experience, because the other thing about this movie is there's no information on it anywhere. Yeah. Even getting a copy of this movie to watch was really, really yeah. difficult. Yes, it was. So the article that I'll be linking to is a snippet of the book that Dahlia Schweitzer wrote about this movie. Like, she, mm. she wrote an entire dissertation, essentially. Okay. There are a lot of really fun themes that uh, Dahlia touches on that I would like to touch on as well. So, in the mid to late 90s, we started to see a big shift in the American workplace. Uh, Telecommuting started to gain a lot of traction, and a lot of employers thought that most people would be working from home by, you know, the mid-2000s. That didn't happen. It's starting Um, to happen more now. It is start. I think there is um, definitely more of an uptick in it. Uh, But the American office was changing a lot, and America was changing a lot in the mid-90s. Like, we're we're coming out of the AIDS crisis. There was a sharp drop in AIDS deaths during this time, even though um, transmissions were still about the same Hmm. um, as far as uh, people contracting the virus. Um, And the AIDS crisis comes into play here. Uh, with some of the themes of the film, but also um, Cindy Sherman was part of the art scene in New York, and she met and was contemporaries with and worked with a lot of people who died because of this. So um, I don't think it's it's surprising that that sort of like themes like that would be present in her work, especially because um, she wanted to make a horror movie. So when she won the MacArthur Genius Grant, Going back to my previous yeah. thing, she won the MacArthur Genius Grant. These big indie houses wanted to push um, getting like new blood in, in for, just to see what the artists could do as filmmakers. Mm-hmm. And film her, is art. It is. It's absolutely art. But her her stipulation was that she wanted to do a horror movie. She also wanted to work with actors who were familiar with her art because she thought it would be easier to direct them. And I can't I can't disagree with her there. Um, Carol Kane, Molly Ringwald, Jean Triplehorn, they all, um, they, they were all very big fans of her work. Eric Bogosian, who was in the film, um, all, did one-man shows all over New York before he got that sweet Law & Order gig, so he was actually a contemporary of hers. Um, and, yeah, so that is a little bit of background. So let's get into the synopsis part where I actually wrote a script. Whoa. When Doreen Douglas's job as proofreader for constant consumer magazine is turned into an at home position during a downsizing, she doesn't know how to cope. After witnessing the accidental death of one of her coworkers, she rediscovers that murder can quench the loneliness of her home life taking it to a macabre new level by recreating the office in her basement with her dead playmates. <laughs> uh, accidental death. <laughs> I mean, it is. It, yeah, it's an accidental death. And it just... It's, all, it's just so it, funny how it just like kind of not... <laughs> spirals from there. Yeah. Doreen, played by Carol Kane, who is a horror queen, queen. 
is a shy but talented copy editor who has been a staple of constant consumer for many years. Her father was part of the original editorial staff. And though quiet, she's an incredibly hard worker who keeps to herself. At home, Doreen takes care of her critical invalid mother, played by Alice Drummond, uh, who has never gotten over the death of Doreen's sexually abusive father, played by Eric Bogosian. There was a car accident when Doreen was in her teens that caused the death of her father and the paralysis of her mother. Mm. Real quick, because this is a movie called Office Killer, you already know Doreen is the office killer. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah. Um, They did not, um, they didn't waste any time getting to that part. Oh, no, they did not. Like, immediately, Um, I think that was just like, hey, by the way, she's the killer. Yeah. (laughs) That was just like, like, right off the bat. Something is weird about Doreen. We're gonna, we're gonna delve into it. Everyone at the office, you know, kind of considers her a weirdo. She's brilliant at what she does. In one of the first scenes, someone brings over a piece of paper to her and she just barely looks at it and she's like, oh yeah, you've got a split infinitive over here. And mm-hmm. like hands it back. And so every, everyone respects her, but she is the quiet loner at the office. She's that the you, weirdo. You don't invite her out. She doesn't want to go out with you anyway. She, she comes into work. She punches in. She does her work. She goes home. No, she does not have a life outside of the office necessarily. Well, outside of taking care of her mom at home which yeah so her mom the office and that's it yeah um i did want to take this moment to point out um similarities between doreen and a prolific contemporary female serial killer eileen warnos Mm. who also killed her co-workers and by that i mean her johns oh okay yeah Uh, so eileen warnos was a sex worker she killed her johns uh because she she would claim self-defense um that they either tried to rape her attack her in some way really she was a psychopath clear mm. clearly a psychopath who was kind of just using the murders as a way to cover up the fact that she was robbing them oh wow mm-hmm. seems like that'd be the opposite way to hide that well, I think in a psychopath's Draws mind, <laughs> you, it's, <laughs> that's not necessarily, right. um, Maybe. Yeah. you know, something that you want to do. Um, another similarity, uh, both Doreen and Eileen, yeah. right, were uh, victims of childhood sexual abuse. That's not to say that that's the reason they nope. went on a homicidal killing spree. Just a similarity. Just a similarity that uh, can be... That's not part of the McDonald triad, but it's like what? the McDonald triad. Um, okay. So it's this thing with serial killers. Um, it's like, uh, animal abuse, bedwetting, head injury. Like those oh, three. Oh, that's called the McDonald triad? The McDonald triad. Why? It's the MacDonald triad. Cause McDonald. Mac, someone named MacDonald came up with it. Oh, okay. So back to the office. Nora, the office manager played by Jean Triplehorn from Big Love. Triplehorn. Mm-hmm. Uh, has been tasked by the chain-smoking lead editor, Virginia, to downsize the office and hand out the pink slips. This was 1995, after all, when telecommuting was all the rage and poised to change America's corporate landscape forever. Or perhaps, constant consumer needed to downsize because they're a small Midwestern publication in the new age of the internet. And I'll take this uh, opportunity to point out, we don't really see a lot of locations in this movie. We see the interior of the office... And the parking garage. We see the exterior of Doreen's house and the interior. And we see one very dimly lit bar. Mm. And then um, also the boyfriend's house. Um, 
there's a boyfriend that comes in later. We see his house. That's it. There are very few locations in this mm. movie. We bounce back and forth oh, between yeah, most right. of them. Um, we spend a lot of time in the office. Kim, played by Molly Ringwald of The Breakfast Club and Riverdale fame, seems to have the title of office gossip. We never see what kind of work she does at the magazine. She teases her friend Nora for being part of the firing squad and never misses an opportunity to make a catty remark, especially about our beloved office loner. She sees Doreen as weird and annoying. Doreen, who actually enjoys working in the office and away from her mother, is distraught by the news that she will now be working from home for at least half of the week. Nora, who seems to take pity on poor Doreen and probably to assuage her guilt about having to hand out a bunch of pink slips, begins to take Doreen under her wing, offering her some hand-me-down business bitch suits and makeup tips. So, a little bit about uh, working from home. According to the study Bringing Work Home, Advantages and Challenges of Telecommuting from the Boston College Center for Work and Family, telecommuting, or working from home, can bring enormous benefits to employers, employees, and the environment. Employers uh, save on costly office space and supplies. Employees maintain a healthier work-life balance. They're able to access, you know, their own things at home they're able to take care of things a little bit easier and the environment gains from having fewer commuters on the road yeah i want to work from home so bad mm-hmm. amazing um so i do want to point out that this is different from the idea of bringing work home with you uh, as this study specifically deals with an employee working from home during office hours and then shutting down once the workday is complete a practice that was actually made law in france in early 2017 man uh, America generally has um, work, uh, its own separate work culture from essentially any other country. Yeah, we're shitty about it. We have a live-to-work culture. A lot Ugh. of, and um, thanks capitalism, everyone is driven to succeed and make a name for themselves in their work rather than a work-to-live culture where you work to get a paycheck and then use that money to do things that you want to do. Live your life! While the study is, is wonderful, and I love it so much, it does point out that these situations only work for certain types of jobs. Uh, in this example, being a copy editor, you can easily do that from your home. You don't need to yeah. be in an office to do that. Um, it also only works for certain personality types and with proper training and support. Uh, so while Doreen's job could easily be done off-site, she clearly likes the comfort and safety of the office. So strike one already. It's a little bit of an escape. Mm-hmm. For... Yeah, and it's an escape for her, um, and it's just where she feels the most comfortable. She's doing something that she feels passionate about, and that's where she wants to be. Doreen also receives very little on-the-job training. Nora's boyfriend, Daniel, played by Michael Imperioli, who was on The Sopranos, Uh, is tasked with helping Doreen set up her home office and train her, yet all he does is set up her new laptop on the dining room table and then encourage her to click around until she feels comfortable. (laughs) So by every conceivable measure, Doreen was just set up for failure. For her final late night in the office, Doreen is tasked with assisting the sleazy, verbally abusive editor Gary, who is Kim's married lover, Mm. uh, who proceeds to berate poor Doreen when she can't figure out how to get his computer working again. Gary takes matters into his own hands, crosses the wrong wires, and is electrocuted. Except, he's not, he doesn't get electrocuted by crossing the wires. She turns the light on. Or she turns it on because she doesn't know what's happening. So that's why it's an accident. Mm -hmm. But it's funny that 
I mean, she directly caused his death. Yeah. She, it's no, like he's, yeah, but it's still he's like, in like, there, and then she went and just turned on the fuse because that's what he went to turn off, mm-hmm. and then everything was dark, and then he was just like fiddling underneath the desk, and then she came out and was like, Bruh, and then turned on the thing, and then he fried to death. I will say, if your office is wired correctly, that shouldn't happen. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. So, I'm going to say that Doreen didn't, <laughs> I mean, it's she didn't a, do definitely it an accidental death, but. Still accident. But let's, <laughs> fuck, you know what, fuck Gary. He did this to himself. Yeah, he's, that guy sucks. He sucked. So, Doreen initially dials 911, but then hangs up when someone answers the line. The ever-creative Doreen sees an opportunity to take her work home with her in more ways than one. Ugh. She loads Gary's corpse into her car to help her set up her new home office. <laughs> oh, God. Um, so let's talk a little bit about lust killers. Lust killers? Lust killers. Lust. Okay. Um, so this is the category of serial killer that women fall into the most. Um Lust killers uh, have some sort of, like, feeling of ownership uh, over the kill or the process or the product or or what have you. Poison tends to be the weapon of choice for female serial killers. They'll still go through the period of escalation and cooling off that male serial killers do. Hmm. Um, and this is actually a really fun example of where Doreen sort of diverges from the female serial killer path and does things the way that men do them. Like how? I think is interesting. Um, a lot, a lot of, a lot of male serial killers will start out sort of by accident. You know, they, they'll be committing another crime, like, um, like, like they'll be raping someone and then they accidentally die or they get to a point where it's like oh I, this wit- I can't let this witness live so they kill them and then they discover that the the rush that they get from killing someone mm. uh, is what they actually need to satisfy mm. themselves Doreen seems to be completely unique in that she is a product killer she's not it's, it's unique um as far as women are concerned, because women are after, more often than not, the financial motive. Um, Doreen wants the body. Hmm. Um, Because she needs office mates. She needs office mates. She needs stuff to do. Um, Product killers, I I, I tried to find research on female product killers or or women who, you know, created, like, a literal body count in that way, you know? Um, Like a Gacy. Mm -hmm. Um, but I couldn't find anything. Um, I would say Doreen has a lot in common with Jeffrey Dahmer in this way. Mm. Uh, he was sentenced to life imprisonment in 1992 for the rape, murder, and dismemberment of 17 men. Yowza. Yes. Um, he was killed in prison in 94. This movie was made in 95, so that's probably that mm. that discovery of Jeffrey mm. Dahmer was probably still pretty fresh in people's minds. I don't think I knew that. Killed in prison how? Uh, he was beaten to death. Wow. Okay. By another inmate. Got it. By just one other inmate. Yep. Holy Jesus. Yep. Got him cornered in the showers and beat the shit out of him. Oh boy. I can't say I feel sympathy. I mean, no, but you know, that's <laughs> still, I mean, impressive on that guy's part. So he didn't actually derive pleasure or sexual satisfaction from killing, but from the dismembering and mutilating of the corpses as he saw fit. In fact, Dahmer had to be completely hammered in order to commit murder. 
uh, murder becomes a means to an end for Doreen. She claims two more victims from her office, the unsuspecting male boy and the aforementioned Virginia. Doreen also murders two young Girl Scouts who arrive at her door to sell cookies, presumably so that these girls can win their troops' cookie-selling contest by selling to her entire office. I thought that would be funnier than it was. <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> I was like, is that, was that really what she was thinking? Okay. No, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> Doreen cares deeply for her new office mates, making sure that they're all comfortable for work. She takes off Virginia's black, talon-like nails, pointing out that it's much easier to type without them. She ensures everyone has a good spot during TV time, and she's also spraying everyone down with Windex and bandaging them with packing tape when yeah. they start to look and smell less than fresh. I uh, mean, I wonder, though, the... I guess it, at some point, it's as you get used to smells. Like, if you have too much... If you have not too much, but just perfume, cologne, um, you just get used to it. But, I mean, the Windex probably covered up a good chunk of that, right? Just keep spraying it on stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what she was using to clean, but... It, it looked like Windex. Like Windex. So, during... Like, while all of this stuff is happening, the office is... You would think that they people would have noticed more when people go missing. Well, no, not in this case, because it was they're laying everyone off. So everyone just assumed mm-hmm. everyone was becoming part-time, so they didn't look into it. Yeah, no, no one's bothering to check on these people, except for Kim, who is wondering where her lover went. Uh, Dor- so Doreen uses her new email savvy to further cover her tracks, sending Kim an email from Gary, claiming that he needs some time away from work and for her to hold down the fort in his absence. <laughs> Again... What does Kim do? This is never established. Uh, She also uses this opportunity to turn up the heat on Nora, informing her in an anonymous email that the jig is up. They know about the embezzling. Here's a fun plot point about this movie. I didn't know until about two-thirds of the way through that Nora was embezzling funds from the company. Me neither. I didn't, and I wasn't sure if that was just something that she said in the email to scare someone, like just that she could have made that up. Mm-hmm. Was that actually a thing that ha- was happening or was some, that was like yeah. a weird threat? Right before this email is sent, Doreen is in Nora's office and happens to look at her screen and she sees like the most rudimentary Excel file. It's like Nora's embezzling file. Like in one yeah. column, it's like all the money, all the money the company made. And then another column, it's like all the money Nora, Nora took. And Doreen sees this Excel file and she's like, oh, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. I would argue that was that's like the catalyst for this for this whole thing happening because that's the reason that these layoffs have to happen. The magazine's not making enough money because Nora's been taking money off the top. Hell yeah. So here again, Doreen breaks away from her female counterparts using weapons and strength in an attempt to subdue her victims. She's nearly successful in strangling Kim with a scarf. And then uses a tire iron to incapacitate Nora in the parking garage. So we're seeing here the escalation of the killing with the shorter uh, period of cooling down between. The movie's not really great at establishing a timeline. This all could have taken place over a week. It could or have been the a same few months. Day. <laughs> it yeah. felt very like. Um, there's, there's a lot about this film that's really not explained. So with the attempted murder of Kim and the kidnapping of Nora, it all comes to a head. Kim convinces Daniel that something is seriously wrong with Doreen, and he decides to go to Doreen's to investigate. He arrives shortly after the paramedics leave. Doreen's mother has finally passed in her sleep, 
And while this could be seen as the relief of a huge burden for Doreen, she is distraught at this new shift in her role as a caretaker. She no longer has anything tying her anywhere. She's completely unmoored, you know? She doesn't have her spot at the office anymore. She doesn't have her mom to take care of. She just has her yeah, new playmates. Her reaction to her mom finding her mom dead was very... I mean, it would it's a upsetting situation, but it was very... like. She was very distraught. Very, but very like, over the top. Yeah. Maybe not reaction. over the top. I think what? it was pretty normal. I think, like, yeah. even, even like, with the dicey relationship she had with her mom, like, when you live with someone like that for so long, I'm sure it was maybe some sort of Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, something. Because the way they portrayed their relationship and then her, you know, it was an accident, but, like, unplugging the chair at some point and then being like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> and then just even when telling her mom, I'll get to spend a lot more time at home with you, ma. Like, mm-hmm. just her, that you'd hear in her like voice. Like how upset she was about that. Yeah. But, yeah, so I guess it was, it was a very big reaction. Mm-hmm. Doreen is able to escape detection, even after the paramedics comment on the smell of death in the house. And the cat, was that a cat, cat like clawing at the door? Yeah, she does have a cat, yeah. and the cat wants to be in the basement with those dead bodies. Wonder why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she also capably dispatches of Daniel while he attempts to save Nora. At last, the thinnest of plots is revealed. Doreen is displeased that Nora took her away from the office, so Nora now has to join Doreen's home office. As Nora bleeds out, she sees decaying corpses come to life around her. Virginia casually chats on the phone to a client. The Girl Scouts are watching the blue screen of the television, enraptured, and Gary and the mailboy are sort of bonding on the couch. The office comes to life in this really uh, surreal but sort of serene uh, Everyone's scene. happy. Yeah, everyone's yeah. just acting normal. And, and Nora's just sort of witnessing this as she bleeds out. So, finally free of all her responsibilities and to truly celebrate her new freedom, Doreen dons a blonde wig, torches her childhood home, and sets off to parts unknown in a little red convertible, riding off into the sunset. Nora, well, her head anyway, is Doreen's only companion in this brave new world. God. Only Kim is left to wonder what happened to her friends. That's right. Where's Kim during all this? She's in Daniel's apartment, so after the strangulation attempt with she is being very dramatic about and granted yeah. i guess she did almost die. I mean, someone did attack her in a stairwell that would be kind of yeah but she scary. she's well i mean she's acting like her leg is broken like she's like on the couch and she like won't move um but she, yeah so they're at daniel's place and she convinces him to go and find nora because she just she doesn't have any proof but she just knows that doreen ain't right and she needs to so now all her friends are dead and she's at her place. Yeah. Doreen rides off into the sunset. That's the last shot of the film. There's a really uh, strange uh, narration over the last scene of, uh, like, as she's leaving town, and she says something, like, vaguely philosophical about, mm-hmm. like, what's, like, new on her horizons. And you can see on the front seat she has a newspaper with, like, an ad circled for, like... Yeah, office manager. Yeah, she's taking <laughs> Nora... She... She single white female Nora. Nora yeah. was the office manager. Now she has Nora's head in a bag, and now she's going to become an office manager, mm-hmm. and maybe embezzle funds from whatever company she, can she live works that for. Life. Yeah. Yep. Uh, good job getting out of Newark. Yeah. Uh, self discovery. I think that's what this movie's about. It's a movie about self discovery, putting the past behind you, mm-hmm. <laughs> torching it. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, setting things. a literal fire to everything. Um, I came away from this movie thinking this is really bad. The, sto- the story was not big enough. I didn't know anything about the characters other than Doreen. I learned a lot about Doreen. A lot. She's the only character that shows any growth of any kind. In fact, I think she she is the protagonist of this movie. Uh, because, you know, based on the simple fact that she's the only person that we really follow and whose story matters in the context of this world. Yeah, because even Nora, is it Nora, right? Nora. Nora's um, supposed to be, I thought she was supposed to be the protagonist, but then she ends up being... The one who's embezzling money and causing mm-hmm. causing the company to go down. And then you're just wondering, why is she trying to be nice to Doreen? And for what purpose? I mean, what are her motives? And you don't know anything about that. Yeah, I don't I don't know what... No one, no one has a real action. None of, none of the characters have any sort of, like, action that they're doing. They don't have any um, point that they're trying to get across. Um, the, and while I do appreciate that this one, this film is led by three, if you count Virginia, four really strong women, with the exception of Doreen, those three women are just archetypes of women that you would see in the office. There's a brief glimpse with Kim's character. Yeah, Kim, Amai Renwald's character, near the end where she's, it's almost like she's kind of breaking through her character uh, in that, or like the archetype, and then she's like, hey guys, but actually there's something up with her. Mm-hmm. Like I know there, like I know there's something. I'm not just being crazy. So she does that, do that a little bit near the end after she gets attacked with the scarf, mm-hmm. um, and then she's like, "No, I know there's something up with her. Go check." I mean, she was right, and she, even though in the beginning it was just her making fun of Doreen for being a weirdo, but then she, it just, it, she feels like it feels like she changed a little bit, but not enough. Yeah. So a lot of these, a lot of these characters felt like. There is something there, mm-hmm. but it fell short. Yeah, um, and I think this is probably the best that Cindy Sherman could do um, as far as bringing these characters to life because this, this is, is not medium. These, yeah, this is not her wheelhouse, and I think that she tried really hard. She actually she so she directed the film, but she also had a hand in writing the story. And with some of the production elements, like all of the basement scenes are, I think, the most visually compelling. And I would imagine that she probably had a hand in those scenes um, a lot because those seem like her work and especially her work from the um, mid 90s, which I believe I have a tab in that book for those for like the the sex portraits might be like one of the middle ones. But like you can tell her stuff's getting weirder. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. You know, she's she's not relying on herself in a lot of those photographs. And actually, in any of those photographs, she's using the bits and pieces that she's collected to create these really macabre sort of portraits. Um, I think one of my favorites is one of, like, oh, someone... Is hello. that the, the squatty one? Is, this, is that one? That's I, a good one. This is a good one, yeah. That's a, that's a mannequin with its, with its, like, you know, like... Presenting On all itself. fours, presenting itself. There's another one where it's, like, there's a... You can see, like, an ass over a face and then, like, a little bit of a drip oh coming my. from the head of a penis. Oh, lordy. I like okay. that one. This movie was bad. Mm-hmm. I like to... But the... I love seeing the good in it. 
Of course. There are a lot of great things about this. I learned so much about Cindy Sherman. I learned a lot more about contemporary art during this journey. Um, but did you learn that by just watching the movie? No. Okay. No. <laughs> like, for, the, for a viewer, if you're watching this movie, what good things could you take from just watching the movie? Uh, I, mean, I thought there were a few. I, mean, I didn't think it was complete garbage. Mm-hmm. I thought there were, there were some good things in this movie. Um, I, I did, I did like, as, as far as, like, the visual component, I do love the basement scenes. They're really well put together, and you, be, because of how much time we spend with Doreen, she's the only character that really develops over time throughout the film, um, and I really cared about her. I really yeah. cared about her well-being, and I was rooting for her. Yeah, which is great. This movie gave you empathy for a psychopath, mm-hmm. and that's what I thought was a good component, not component, but I thought that was a good part of this movie was that, I mean, it starts off right, right off the, right, uh, starts off with, okay, she's the killer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's no leading up to it. There's no build up. There's no nothing. It's just, she's the killer. Cool. Uh, and then you just dive into her world. You see her fucked up, you know, her childhood. And it was kind of confusing at parts. I re- actually, even though I realized it later, like what was happening, there were parts that made me think, okay, so she has a crush on her dad? No, it's that he's definitely... Because the way her mom's talking about it in the mm-hmm. car made it, of course, it was very... Yes. Shifted the blame on her. Yeah. Which is very fucked up, but it happens all, all the time, unfortunately, in those situations where the family is seemingly trying to protect themselves by mm-hmm. saying, no, you're... Can you believe these things she's saying about you? There's such perverted things. Oh, my God. Like, thinking that it's just... Her and daughter's also, fucked like, up imagination. Blaming her daughter for flirting with her father. Yes, so that's what I mean. It just felt very like, oh well, the mom. Nope, the mom's just that couldn't possibly be what's happening. It's just the daughter being, you know, perverted and having these inappropriate feelings. And no, and then you quickly later realize that's definitely not what's happening. So it it, it yeah. she does it, it paints this portrait of this life, and you you have this empathy for this fucked up person that you know well and i can't say fucked up person but just she's had a fucked up life Mm -hmm. and then you're like well you know what makes sense now that you're in this situation and you kind of want to kill people (laughs) yeah and let's i'll I'll go back to the the car accident that killed her father super briefly because i did kind of gloss over it if we want to get technical about doreen's kill count this is technically her first kill kill killing her abuser was her first act as a serial killer technically she, then she had a very very long cooling off I was period say, there's many years and go then by. accidentally someone dies and that uh spirit is rekindled mm, yeah. uh, i i like to create a little bit of a, a different story in my head for this movie okay. and i think that that is fine considering uh what cindy sherman does as a conceptual artist i want to so let's say if I were to look at this, uh, this one whole movie as if it were one Sherman photograph or a series of Sherman photographs. Mm-hmm. This, I think, the whole narrative is not in Doreen's head necessarily, but um, kind of the way that she sees the world. Um, so, you know, we don't see a lot of locations in this movie. We only ever see locations that Doreen has seen or been to and the the only other location that she may not have been to is the bar 
that Nora and Kim and Daniel are hanging out in, in like two scenes. They're in a bar. Yeah. But in these scenes, both Kim and Nora are drinking the most iconic cocktail drinks. Like, (laughs) Nora has a perfect movie martini, and Kim is drinking a hurricane. I've never Mm. in my life seen anyone... I've never in my life gone to a bar and seen anyone order a hurricane that doesn't happen unless you're you know on vacation somewhere Mm -hmm. near a beach yeah like you're on a (laughs) beach you're in new orleans you're like fuck it i want all the booze um so i i like to imagine this movie as being somewhat doreen's fantasy of what the world actually is or like some sort of rose-colored view of what's actually happening Mm, okay and the bar scenes while i they they, you know, they might have happened. It sort of seems like Doreen is telling the story of what happened at the bar. Yeah, I, I think that Doreen, you know, saw an episode of Sex in the City and was like, that's what people drink at bars. Yeah. And so as she's telling the story of, like, how she got to the end point, uh, she's describing maybe Nora and Kim at the bar. and what like, they, were they were probably friends. talking about and what they were you probably know. drinking. Yeah. Yeah, so that is what inspired me to make this drink i made oh okay yeah so this is a hurricane uh the drink is called hurricane h-e-r oh i get it hurricane doreen i also decided that i should make a hurricane because they're full of booze and they're so tasty they're full of booze and we deserve the booze after watching this movie (laughs) yes um, so this is delicious rum punch. Thank you very much. You are welcome. So this is made with both light and dark rum. I also macerated strawberries mm. uh, to put in there. It's made with a passion fruit cocktail that involves pineapple. Um, there's orange juice in here. There's lime. And then I also got really fancy and made a peppercorn and cin- a pink peppercorn and cinnamon simple syrup. Whoa. Uh, yes. That's delicious. Thank you. Um, so this movie reminds me so much of, so I, I wanted this to be for next month. There are so many movies that I want mm-hmm. to like talk about. Um, but maybe we can talk about it briefly here in that one of my favorite movies, another recommend, I feel like on our site we should have, well, we do have recommendations, but per episode. Mm-hmm. So just somewhere on there, even maybe in the description, we can just go back and add, say, Hey, if you like this movie. You'll also like. check out. Yeah, because if you like this movie, please watch May. <gasps> yes, that May. Is what this movie reminded me of so hard. May it is was, such a Doreen. It, yeah, and in, in that they're just, I don't want to say too much about May without giving that away, giving away May, mm-hmm. but I would suggest watching that. It's very similar. It has the same feels of... There's, I mean, it's it's a, it's a stereotype, but just like a character of just the shy weirdo mm-hmm. uh, who has interesting, <laughs> interesting life outside of work. Yes, <laughs> to put it mildly, yeah. and an interesting relationship with just with people. Uh, so, could work on their interpersonal communication and their interpersonal skills a little bit. But uh, I really liked that comparison so i feel like those those are two yeah it wasn't garbage it wasn't a complete garbage movie oh, office killer um had a, had some good do it mm-hmm. and reminded me of may a whole lot yeah which is one of my favorite movies that's a good one it's 
uncomfortable. Yes. In a is, really good way. Yeah. Um, speaking of, of uncomfortable, let's talk about AIDS. Okay. Um, so you'll notice in this movie, Nor- so Nora from the very beginning of this movie is suffering from a cold. She's got a stuffy voice basically throughout. Virginia, the editor, while chain smoking, is also like trying to stave off this cold. She's oh, yeah, like constantly taking echinacea drops and like oh, cough yeah. syrup and she has this inhaler. Um, so there's this uh, sort of air of infection mm-hmm. um, and viral transmission essentially throughout this movie because no one touches each other. And they all mentioned in the beginning, they're all they're all referencing this cold going around mm-hmm. the office and saying, oh, you have it, don't touch. So they, they are yeah, and like it. Nora says to Kim, I got your cold. And Kim says, you got Gary's cold. Ooh. So, scandal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no one really touches each other in the movie and there's actually a scene when Daniel is training uh, Doreen at home at her computer and he goes to touch her hand and she immediately withdraws it and granted she's got her own sort of you know trauma issues but this movie is completely devoid of touch for the most part except for this one scene where daniel and nora are either at her place or his place and they're kind of rolling around on the bed but even that is interrupted after nora basically tells him to stop uh there's a fear somehow of getting too close to somebody and that kind of plays into the fears that were going on at the time of this new shift in the workplace um moving everything to kind of you know working from home working from home and did people yeah digitizing a bunch of stuff like daniel even even says to doreen like a lot of people love email so much they stop talking altogether Uh, which is horrifying, but it sort of, it takes the humanity out of the workplace. Mm -hmm. And really, um, just as Doreen starts collecting the bodies of her office mates, it sort of just turns people into, you know, cogs in the machine. Like, their their humanity is no longer valued so much as their work. Again, these are not my ideas. I took these from Dali Schweitzer's uh, amazing article. Hmm. Um, I can't wait to get a hold of this book, which goes into these themes even, you know, even more deeply because this is just a four-page article that she wrote for Jump Cut, which is a, a film magazine. I am fascinated by monstrosity because it is something that is so. I could, I would consider myself um, a kind person, an empathetic person, and it boggles my mind that you that there are people that aren't that way. That could murder another person. Yeah, with no remorse. Yeah, that's that's the other thing. Like I, I, you know, I don't want to say that I'm capable of murder, but I would feel bad about it. Yeah. Uh, if I did murder someone, it would plague you. It would, but it it certainly doesn't plague Doreen. Nope. Um, she embraces it, fully embraces it because she see, doesn't even see it as murdering, just relocating. Yeah, just <laughs> to her home, relocating. And body parts are of no issue. Just no. put tape on it. And it was like she was playing with it at some point. She, like, put the tape on, sprayed some Windex on it, and then was just, like, squishing it back into his body. Uh, yeah. Like, the, <laughs> so the, the male boy is, like... You keep saying male boy. Male like, boy. Like, <laughs> you say, like, 
the like, mail he boy. delivered the mail yes. or he was the mailroom boy he's like the the mailroom boy he like he worked okay. in the mailroom he so it, like at the actually at the beginning of the movie there's a really cool tracking shot of the cart where like the camera is basically just like on the mail cart and he's like pulling stuff off and throwing it on people's desks and you work your way through the entire office and then mm-hmm. it stops at Doreen's desk and that's probably what should clue you in that this is the most important character in this film yeah because she's the one that is being highlighted in this moment mm-hmm. um i i think it's sad that cindy sherman doesn't consider this part of her body of work she and because there's really no information about this movie um, I'm going to guess that it just, everyone kind of collectively wants to forget about oh, it. Oh, no. Um, so when Miramax was marketing this film, who, who do you think you would market this movie to? Like, if, if you were a marketing person and you saw this movie, like, even if it's a piece of garbage, but you still got to sell it, who would you sell this movie to? Like, what demographic? Oh, boy. I would say... Like, the Breakfast Club, te- like, teens who also love the movie Psycho. <laughs> like, that's a, like, the horror freaks who are in the, you know, teens. Miramax only put this movie as, like, their test audiences were almost exclusively male and all of them young teens. Well, teens isn't so bad, only because it... It portrays the office as this unknown world, kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this, like it's not like that people are going to, well, I guess some people could watch it and relate to it. Like office, office work, office mm-hmm. living, or not living, but I don't know. That's kind of what I think of. I think it just, it felt, it felt very, uh, I don't know. I guess early 20s, maybe. Yeah. I, I would say maybe market it more to women. Oh, so how do they only market that to men? What does um, that marketing look like? Well, so w- when you get a test audience together for a movie, you basically, like, you screen um, one of the edits of the film. Like, usually the film isn't completely done as far as editing goes. Like, they'll mm-hmm. – or, or they'll screen, like, a couple different versions of the edit. Um, but you, you get, like, a viewing room together. You pull people from the demographic that you're marketing to and – get them in the audience and then you pull them after to see what they liked and what they disliked everyone loved molly ringwald of course um and that's i think when miramax finally decided to distribute this movie because it was made in 95 but it wasn't distributed until 97 it was put on the shelf for a long time they were really relying on molly ringwald to sell this movie and you can kind of tell from the poster she is most prominently featured um as far as like her face and she's got you know, it, the scarf is kind of around her neck almost, and she's got a cigarette, and she looks looks super cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, they, I really think that they didn't market this movie well, considering who uh, was at the head of Miramax at the time, Harvey Weinstein. Well, it was great. Yeah. We're never going to escape Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've talked about him in every podcast we've done so far. Yeah. Uh, it's a shame that he was allowed to work for so long. This is a garbage movie, but they marketed it to the wrong people. And I'm sorry, Cindy Sherman, that I keep saying this movie was garbage. (laughs) I mean, it didn't do well in theaters. 
this movie made received well it was not received well critically commercially i don't have numbers on what the budget was but i know that it made about thirty seven thousand dollars domestically that's nothing Mm -mm. nothing i know the percentage again (laughs) that's so sad yeah um yeah, Cindy Sherman doesn't want to consider this part of her body of work, and I can see why. It probably wasn't a great experience for her. She probably felt like a fish out of water. Um, I am. I imagine it was probably really great to work with Carol Kane, Molly Ringwald, Jean Triplehorn, all these actors who, you know, really enjoy your work or really enjoy your work and understand it. And actually, um, yeah, so Barbara Sakawa is married to uh, Robert Longo, who is another contemporary artist who is one of Cindy Sherman's contemporaries. They went oh. to school together at SUNY okay. Buffalo. Well, you're uh, saying she chose people for the movie kind of based on their connection to her art, though, right? Um, yeah, well, not Or if, not if necess- they were familiar with her art. Yeah, she wanted people who were familiar with her art because she felt it would be easier to direct them. And I would say as a first-time director, that's probably very smart. That's a very wise move. Uh, I think it's sad that she doesn't want to consider this part of her body of work because if I were to look at especially those basement scenes or certain shots of the film or just even looking at the character of Doreen... And Dahlia Schweitzer points this out as well. Doreen is a Sherman woman. She is Hmm. a character that uh, Sherman created to express a certain point of view. And I would say, like, Kim, Virginia, Nora, they all are too. There's not as much depth with them as there is with Doreen, but they're all Sherman women. I um, enjoyed it as art. Because film is art and art is film. Um, what, and, and whatever. Um, I would give this movie... I think I'm going to give it a poop. As, as, a, as, a poop movie, as a movie, it's terrible. But as part of Cindy Sherman's body of work, I think that there are a lot of really beautiful scenes and really beautiful points that she's making and I think that there is a story that she's trying to tell in the character of Doreen um and unfortunately the rest of the stuff kind of bogs every bogs all that down I really do like the idea of this being Doreen's retelling of what happened to her like I could honestly imagine the last shot of the movie actually being like Doreen sitting in front of a fire telling the story to her next victim yeah um I think that that would have been really fun. Or or taking it more in the direction of American Psycho where you're not really sure if she's actually killing people or yeah. maybe she is. Um, and they do share similarities in like the interchangeability of office workers like Patrick Bateman is, um, you know, mistaken for Jared Leto's character. Um, they have the same glasses and the same business card and like he's not as unique as he thought he was, yeah. you know. Um, but I... Yeah, I as a movie, it's got it's got a poop. I'm gonna just give it a one, a one bat. Okay, that's you know, fair. I I didn't I didn't hate it so much. I wouldn't watch it again, never again. But didn't hate it, <laughs> so I'll just give it one bat. Okay, that's it. Yeah. So 
IMDb gave this movie 4.9 stars out of 10. Okay, yeah. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a 12%. Yeah, that's so funny. It Definitely is. Definitely the lowest. Bad. Actually, the, so but the audience score is 51%. So yeah. there's a, that's a pretty big difference. I'm not sure that I have anything else to say about this movie. And as much fun as I had researching it and learning about contemporary art and Cindy Sherman, I probably will never watch this again unless someone really, really wants me to. Um, so I'll just take this opportunity to say thank you for listening. Please subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud. We're definitely on Stitcher. I'm working on getting us on Spotify. Yeah! Um, but the only thing that matters in podcast world is Apple Podcasts, so please subscribe there. Uh, tell all your friends. Go to gcbc.show for recipes, show notes... You know, I know what we can do. What can we do? We can talk about the next movie that's going to be happening. Yes, Amy, what are you doing next month? I want to know what I, sh- what I should be watching. Let me find out. I know what year it is, but I don't know who directed it. Mm. Oh, Toby. Toby okay. Hooper? <laughs> no, Toby Wilkins. I actually don't know what else he's done. Oh. Other horror movies. <laughs> okay. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Yeah, mo- most horror movie directors kind of stay in that genre. <laughs> that is yeah, that's true. Um, so, next month, next time, on Ghoul Cop, Bat Cop, we'll be discussing the 2008 classic Splinter. Ooh! This is, this is a movie that I have heard a lot about but still haven't seen um i had aged out of the range where my mom could tell me what i could and could not watch at this point being 2008 but i still haven't seen it okay dear viewers thank you for listening please subscribe on all platforms follow us like us find us on places love us we just want you to love us yeah interact with us we would like to start interacting with you i would like to talk to you i want to know what you like dear viewer you're interested in one viewer who's listening. Hi. Kyle. Yeah. I was like, hey, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to our one fan. <laughs> I mean, we have several amazing supportive friends. Many. Many, many. They might not listen, but they're very supportive. Yes. <laughs> they're, they love us, but mm-hmm. maybe not our show. That's fine. Yeah. But they're supportive of our endeavors. Thanks, guys. Good cop. Bad cop. Ha, 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 ha.